0: The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com disclosures.
1: Um, so uh, good evening. Uh, I want to welcome everyone to the A16Z Bio Clubhouse Room. Um, and this is uh, the room where we cover the future of bio and healthcare very broadly and what we hope is a loosely structured, interactive and engaging discussion. Uh, for those of you that, uh, that may not know me, uh, my name is Jorge Conde. I'm one of the general partners uh, here at A16Z and with me are my partners um, and my general partner colleagues, uh, Vinita Argoala, uh Vijay Pandey, and Mark Andreessen. So joining us today uh, is Eric Kelsic, the founder and CEO of Dynotherapeutics. Therapeutics, Along with uh, his longtime collaborator and co-founder uh, Sam Sinai, Did I, am, I, am I pronouncing the last yes. name right? Sinai. Yes, that's right. Sinai. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, just to give you a little bit of high-level background on on Dino, uh, Dino is using it's Dino Therapeutics is using artificial intelligence to what I design what I call a fleet of AAV delir- delivery vehicles. Um, in order to create the FedEx for gene therapy. And when I say that, what I mean is you know gene therapies um, essentially have multiple components. Probably the two most important components are the payload, the package of genetic um, information that you're delivering, and the delivery vehicle, the way you envelop that package to get it into cells and to ensure it goes to where you want it to go. And there are a lot of things associated with how you think about the packaging, which, of course, Eric and Sam will be able to, to, to discuss in, in much greater detail than I can. But one of the biggest challenges that gene therapy has as a field is the ability to deliver those packages in a way that doesn't create you know, problems with the immune system in ways that we can get those packages to the right cells, um, in in ways that we can actually dose, in an ideal world, dose these gene therapies more than once without triggering the immune system. So there's all kinds of challenges there. And so that's what you know. Really, um, you know, Dino's mission is, is centered around is can you use artificial intelligence to make better delivery vehicles? In this case, uh, what we call AAVs, um, which stands for Dino-associated uh, virus vectors, which is the sort of the workhorse delivery vehicle that's used in this in this in this space. And so, to give you a little bit of background on this team, and I want to hand it over to to both Eric and Sam, um, a bit about Eric. Before founding Dino, uh, he studied physics at Caltech, and he trained at uh, the renowned uh, church lab at Harvard Medical School. And we've been fortunate to have George uh, here as a guest before on Clubhouse. And Eric is a leading bioengineer and computational biologist and recognized expert really at this intersection of machine learning and biology. Sam, uh, who leads the machine learning team at Dino. Uh, was also trained as a computer scientist at MIT, completed his PhD in computational biology at Harvard, and like Eric, worked at the Church Lab, um, where Eric, in fact, uh, served in in many ways as a mentor to some. Um, And now he's worked on Dino's core machine learning technology. So that's what I'm gonna do by way of background for both of you. Thank you both for being here today. Um, I'm thrilled that you guys would make the time, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. For the rest of the folks in the room, just a quick note that this conversation is being recorded. Uh, For those of you who are interested in coming up to ask or chat or ask questions later, by doing so, please note that you're consenting to us using your words and an image in a recording uh, related to this event. So let's get started. Um, Eric, uh, let me start with you. Um, you know, we've had the good fortune of knowing each other for some time, uh, and I think the sort of the founding story behind Dino, Dino is a particularly fascinating one. So I'd love to just hear in your words, you know, what inspired you, you know, while you're at the Church Lab, to think about this problem, to think about this problem being the basis for a company like Dino. Was there a particular aha moment that you had when you realized, all right, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my life.
2: Uh, Thanks, thanks, Jorge. That's a great question and really happy to be here and share this story with you all. Um, It it was interesting because uh, it didn't didn't quite happen like that, that I was in George's lab and suddenly decided I wanted to go uh, be part of a startup. It was a little bit uh, backwards, actually, um, in that during my PhD, I got really interested in startups. And uh, that's when I decided I wanted to shift from academia into industry. And so when I went to George's lab Actually, my plan was to do something a little atypical. It was just uh, to transition into industry. And my, my PhD was more developing new technologies, but applying them to problems in basic research. And I wanted to apply them to something more industry relevant. So I knew that George had a lot of connections to industry and his lab was more applied. Um, and I knew him because he was one of uh, my, my dissertation advisory committee uh, advisors for my PhD. Um, so I, I asked if I could join his lab in the short term, maybe just six months and kind of transfer some of the knowledge that I had to the lab, but also make a lot of connections and get up to date with what was new and industry and then transition to join some exciting new startup. So it was really kind of meant to reposition myself for a new career, um, but wasn't the goal to start a company that only kind of came uh, in the process of looking for an interesting problem that could really showcase my skills uh, essentially, um, like asking what's the most important full exposed to A V. and uh, from from looking into that more and really trying to understand a problem at some point I switched and and that was the realization that, oh, actually, this isn't um, a problem that would solve you know, just one startup's uh, uh, needs, but would really uh, help the entire industry. And um, through some digging on that, and especially like going out and talking to folks in gene therapy companies or gene editing companies or investors in those companies, and really trying to understand if it was a real problem, uh, you know, if they cared, if they would even be willing to pay for such an improved captive. Uh, Only then did I realize, oh, this is maybe something that, uh, could be really big, and and decided to stay on in George's lab for uh, what ended up being about four years, to to get the technology to work. Uh, then you know from then on, with the goal of starting a company around it, and um, you know a, a big part of that too was when I, when I joined George's lab. Again, I was thinking I was going to transition into industry, and then I met a, a whole class of folks who were, as part of their postdoc or PhD, working on incubating startups. Uh, they would then spin out of the lab, which was just a completely different model that I didn't expect. And so like that being an option was new. Plus then this opportunity to work on AVs was really exciting and seemed like really perfect timing for the technology and the unmet need. Uh, and so, so that completely changed my plans and then um, stayed on and then eventually got connected with uh, with folks like you uh, and other investors. Uh, and that, we started a company at the end of 2018, but actually the postdoc with George started in, in 2015. So it was quite some time. Before the things came together, so so one of some of the folks
1: here and 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 folks associated with the firm have written about this extensively. This like this idea, this concept of what we call the idea maze. That you know, you know, when when you know someone that has traversed the idea maze has really looked at a problem um, um, from every angle, has sort of thought through all of the potential traps, you know, has worked through all of the you know the the best solutions, et cetera. And it's only when you emerge you know, from the idea maze um, that you really, you know, can have a, a powerful insight that could be the basis for a powerful, um, you know, concept that could, you know, be the basis for a company or, you know, or, or some significant advancement. When you're looking, when, you know, from what you were describing, you're looking at the gene therapy space, everyone knows that, um, you know, delivery is is a problem, is an important a problem is that a, I mean that's a pretty fair statement, right? That,
2: like that that's and, very so, fair. Right? In fact, it's I would say the it's, it's the problem. Like the problem in the exactly. field, and always has been since you know thirty or forty years ago. Um. So then,
1: you know, one of the insights you have, presumably given your skill set, is like, well, okay, you know, I can I can apply machine learning to design better capsids. And so I assume when you went around talking to to folks, and you you described talking to you know folks in industry i'm sure you spoke to folks in academia at harvard i'm sure you know in academia across you know the field um is the answer you got what was of course it's a problem we all agree it's a problem how much resistance did you get to the idea that machine learning is part of the solution right like is there skepticism there it's like look we haven't been able to figure out in 30 40 we haven't figured this out in 30 40 years why would we assume that you know sprinkling some you know machine learning on this is going to solve this problem?
2: Yeah, I think that that is um, – it's not what I was asking folks because I, I guess I, – I believe this was the answer to, to solve that problem, but um, it wasn't what I was trying to de-risk in terms of understanding the market. I, I just wanted to make sure that if we did make a better AV, that people would uh, would want to use it, that they would adopt it, and that, that was the key risk because you know, no matter how we solved it, if we did have a, um, a better capsid, people were going to want to use it. And um, you know, I, I guess there was a personal conviction that this was the approach to do it, just because of all the challenges the field had faced, uh, and where you know we hadn't made progress for for many decades. Um, I felt I was well positioned to assess that, but that I needed to make sure that um, uh, that it was a problem worth solving. And uh, yeah. so, and that's why I did you know all the customer discovery very early
3: on. So, Eric, it's interesting to think about, you know, it's tempting to think about AI as a technology. And obviously it is in terms of building products and uh, in your case, AVs and so on. But I think it's also interesting to think about how it affects your go to market. So, for example, um, you know, like, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that people don't care about where the capsid came from. They're just going to want diligence to make sure it does all the properties you claim it does. And if it does that, where it came from doesn't bother them. But I'm curious now uh, that now that you can employ ML, uh, artificial intelligence involved with this, presumably now you can roll out things in a much more platform-like way, uh, defensibility, uh, maybe even some sort of network effect or data network effect. Um, Does that change things uh, from that perspective? Like now it's not just like they don't care about where an individual came from, but now you can actually do much more.
2: Um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, I think it certainly changes how we think about dyno strategy and why we're so all in on platform and technology because of those barriers to entry we can create as well as those advantages you get when you accumulate the most you know, data of this type and the densest data, because those really drive progress in machine learning. Um, I, I can say back in 2015, and just a little about my background, You know, I'm not a machine learning expert. I, I would say... Um, at this time, you know, I had been trained as a physicist, so I had done programming and data analysis, a lot of that for my PhD, but I really thought of myself mostly as an experimentalist, someone who was good with their hands and could get things working and really wanted to try to find things that were at the intersection of experimental biology and uh, data analysis. Um, so what, what drew me to think about machine learning was I, I had worked on these really exciting experimental technologies for my PhD, which are, know the ability to do really high throughput genetic experiments that combine DNA synthesis to make different genetic libraries with um, some sort of assay and then as as a result of the assay the abundance of those different sequences changes and you can read that out using DNA sequencing in high throughput it's a technology that was developed primarily for whole genome sequencing but you know about halfway through my phd people started to use it to do experiments instead kind of like a, a genetic microscope and I was just blown away by that, um, the potential of that technology and really felt that it would, um, be a good fit for me because I like doing experiments, but I, who doesn't love doing, you know, 10,000 experiments all in, all at once and that, that felt to me like it would be a really good personal opportunity. Cause then I could think about how to analyze that data and then, you know, be able to design a better experiment, maybe than others who who didn't have the, the data analysis but be able to do the experiment as well because of like my, my, my hands on training. So, so that's what I did for my PhD. And in the end, it, uh, I did learn those skills. Um, but the, it was kind of this imbalance of the two technologies and that the experimental side was really powerful such that we could do an experiment in maybe a week and generate hundreds of thousands of different variants and measure their properties in this high throughput manner. Um, and, and then I spent about two years analyzing that data to try to figure out what happened. So uh, there, were, there were, of course, all sorts of insights there. That That's the reason why I felt there would be some potential to apply these for protein engineering. But r- really, you want to extract those insights as quickly as possible and then apply them to designing a better protein. So I, I really came to George's lab with the idea of learning some new technologies, one of them being DNA synthesis, high-throughput DNA synthesis, because that's how you could use the information by programming a new library and then at the time when i joined it was really just we need to automate the data analysis to make it faster and you know as i was looking around at what was new in technology this was you know at the early days of you know deep learning becoming really popular uh, in terms of you know videos on youtube and um, you know, speech analysis at least it was it was breaking into the mainstream where i could recognize that and say oh i think this is a way to automatically learn uh, representations that will help us design better proteins, even though we haven't really done that yet, or the data sets haven't been there to do that, but this is the same thing. So we're just going to do that. And um, I, I hadn't done machine learning before, but Church Lab was a fantastic place to meet all sorts of different folks. And in fact, that, that's how I first got connected with Som, who who is a machine learning expert. And we started our collaboration together. Um, so that was another reason why, being in George's lab for that four years is a really great time to kind of incubate on this, uh, this idea and to assemble, you know, the workings of the technology and the beginnings of a team that would help us uh, to spin out a few years later. So maybe that's a good, that's a good uh, uh,
1: moment to transition over to you, Sam. I'd love to hear your take on, on sort of the origins of, of Dyno. Um, so obviously you're in the church lab together. Um, you're getting uh, mentorship um, uh, from, from Eric. Um, how did you think about the question, uh, you know, was it, was it a sort of purposeful decision to say like, okay, I am going to go down the path of, you know, helping launch this startup. Um, or was it, uh, sort of a more gradual thing was, was sort of biotech in your, you know, on your horizon, um, while you were in the church lab and doing a startup, or was that something that sort of emerged organically?
4: Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Um. So I guess I, I'm, I'm just going to start a little bit further back very quickly, but I um, want to say that this sort of me joining Dino was... I had an aha moment. Um, I, I grew up in Iran, actually, and um, I was super curious about science. And um, I always wanted to do something that's at the cutting edge of either technology or human knowledge or like doing something that is really impactful. And so I chose to come to the US for to go to school because I felt like um, I needed that sort of training to uh, be able to do these things. It's not necessarily the case, but obviously it would put me in a better position to do that. And um, during my PhD, when I first started my PhD, I was more interested in very theoretical problems about basically um, origins of life and the boundary of organisms that are living and unliving. So I was definitely very interested in viruses. Um, and I spent my, the first two years of my PhD doing more, mostly mathematical models of um, vi- like non-living things uh, at the boundary of living. And then um, after two years, I got a little bit bored of how theoretical and um, you know like philosophical the problems were. And uh, frankly, I was just feeling like it's a little bit too academic. I want to see the results of my theories in data rather than in reviewer reports. And um, that way I, I was looking around to, to see if I can collaborate with someone who is working with actual data and I ran into George at some um, Origins of Life um, meeting and then he suggested two different postdocs in his lab and one of them was Eric. Uh, as soon as I talked to Eric, it was very clear to me that um, this is a man with a mission and is very clear about what uh, he wants to do. but. And I found the project fascinating, but from a theoretical perspective. Like I was purely an academically minded person and I was like, I want to answer fundamental questions about how the world works. So I'm going to work on this project. I'm going to learn a lot of very interesting things about that and solve interesting problems. It's amazing. Um, and then I started working with Eric. Um, it was a few years um, and I, I want to uh, use this as... To to make a comment about machine learning that we we just discussed as well, one of the things I liked about Eric's approach was he wasn't um, looking at machine learning as black magic or like a pro, like a hype. Like he wasn't caught. Um, he wasn't intimidated by the hype. Uh, and actually, when I joined um, and started collaborating with him, he was actually using. Like very strong, very good baseline models that didn't use machine learning per se. They were simpler models, but I felt like this is exactly the type of rigorous approach I would hope to deal with. Of course, at the time, also there were a lot of machine learning models and algorithms that were showing a lot of promise elsewhere. So it made sense for us to also try them. And anyone who tells you that like they knew why they were trying a particular model, um, I I don't I don't I have skepticism to believe them. Like even machine learning scientists, they try a lot of things and some of them work and then they try to walk back and say, okay, I I was smart enough to tell you from the beginning why this would have worked. Um, But most of machine learning today is like, in my view, still a lot of art uh, rather than science. So it was important to be working with someone who understood the scientific rigor and, and had that approach both at the data science, at the sort of biology side and also the computational side. Um, And one of the reasons it was so attractive and I thought this is a time that machine learning could contribute, whereas it could have not done before, it was the scale of data that was available. And the other thing was the sort of accessibility of so many machine learning algorithms so you could iterate fast on a problem you don't understand really well. And that really helps you to make progress, whereas like 10, 20 years ago, you neither had the data, nor could you um, iterate that fast because there weren't so many like accessible packages and all these like infrastructure that's built to make machine learning easy. So that's that's an important part of it. Now, for Mm -hmm. the last bit, I just want to say that late in my PhD where I, what I still was like in my mind, I thought, okay, I feel like I'm, I'm gonna go become an academic because I'm interested in solving puzzles. I just had this uh, realization that this problem that I'm working on is exactly the problem that I dreamed of uh, as a teenager because it both had really challenging intellectual and scientific puzzles. And also if, even if you came up with a partial solution with it would have impact on a lot of people. In addition to that, I really like working with Eric, and I was not ready to stop working with him. So these two reasons together made it very easy for me to change my life plan, if you will, of wanting to be an (laughs) academic. Um, And yeah, it's been really exciting. I'm learning a lot, and uh, being as part of a startup is actually very rewarding.
1: Uh, So I wouldn't have any complaints so far. That's fantastic. Well, welcome to the dark side. Um, Thanks. uh, you talk a lot about the the solutions um and you know the technology that one can bring to bear to these problems i want to take a minute to like focus on the problems um if we could in the in in the gene therapy space especially for some folks in the audience who may not be as familiar with this with this field so um you know maybe one place to start is with the headlines so you know if you follow the field at all you know one of the things that you see pretty clearly in the headlines right now is you know some of the challenges that folks have seen with uh, gene therapy programs that are currently in clinical development, right? There have been, you know, cases of, se- you know, severe adverse events reported, um, the cases of multiple patient deaths on a clinical trial. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, the problem? You know, why why do we see, you know, these these adverse events? What's going on? And importantly, you know, why are these things still happening now? And can, you know, how do we get past this? Because one of the things that I think anyone who's been in this space for a while would worry about is, you know, the 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 unfortunate um setback that the gene therapy field had, you know, a generation ago when uh when a young man, a guy named Jesse Gelsinger, um, died in a in a clinical trial, a gene therapy clinical trial um at the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, you know, are we seeing a repeat of that where we're gonna have now another Jesse Gelsinger type moment in 2021? Um, you know, really what what's going on here? Um, for folks that may not be as familiar
2: yeah thanks Hori. that's a great question um and uh, it, it's a deserves a really i would say thoughtful response um, I, I would say just to zoom out a little bit you know the problem more broadly is uh, that there's thousands of genetic diseases that we now know about and can diagnose and understand even how they you know the cause of those diseases but uh, there's in many cases, no, no way to treat those. Uh, there's just no good treatment option, no good medicine. And in many cases, uh, once once folks get that diagnosis, it's essentially a death sentence. Uh, in many other cases, you know, um, a lifelong disability. So that's just really the tragedy um, that um, you know of, of medicine today, and what gene therapy offers is promise that there's a way to uh, to treat those diseases by. Uh, replacing um, that um, re- replacing with a natural human gene or, or maybe adding some other uh, protein or payload that can uh, kind of add new functions or even edit the genome to, um, to change it so that it, it fixes the underlying cause of the disease. So there, there's huge excitement because of that promise. And um, I think what's really exciting as well is that recently, especially thanks to uh, delivery vectors like AV, which in general are quite safe. Um, and in fact, one of the nice things about AV is that it doesn't uh, cause any you know, natural form of disease or it kind of hurt, hurt people when, when you get infected with it. One of those reasons is it's actually a parasite of other viruses, which is why it's called a dino associated virus. Um, so th- just as a little bit of context, it- it's important to kind of talk about the challenges that we face as a field uh, in comparison mm-hmm. to the, the bigger challenges that we face in all of medicine. And although AV does have a very good track record in terms of safety, uh, it's very manufacturable, um, generally, you know, well understood how to use it safely, but um, it's not perfect. And a, a big reason for that is that in many cases, we're using uh, the capsids, which are those protein shells, are adapted directly from natural uh, viruses, and they're not optimized for use therapeutically, which means that their delivery properties are far from ideal and that's, that forces people as they're, you know, weighing all possible options and really trying to cure disease as quickly as possible um, to sometimes push the limits of, you know, what might be safe. Again, weighing that against the the other risk of just not doing anything, which is also, you know, in, in many cases, very bad. So the there's this challenge, but it's because, you know, there's a good chance that we're going to succeed. And in cases where even something like you know, the adverse events that you mentioned where people, people are pushing the limits with high dose AAV, it's, it's for a good reason. And, uh, I do think there's, there's, you know, value in being thoughtful and doing all the right procedures and tests and preclinical testing to ensure we're, we're doing things as safe as possible. Um, but I, but I do also want to say that there's also a huge reason, um, uh, and, and huge reason for optimism in the field. And, um, I think that's, one of the things that really struck me in getting into the field, which is how direct the impact our work is on patients in terms of like seeing really transformative results, even several weeks after people get a gene therapy, you know, and um, like, it's really the difference between, uh, you know, night and day, like um, people being incapacitated and then several weeks or months later, being able to walk upstairs. Uh, So that's really, really just amazing to me and inspirational. Um, I, I can say with regard to, Dinah's work and how we hope to impact the field, it's really by directly addressing those challenges, the challenges that we face from not having all the right tools to deliver uh, gene therapies to patients effectively, meaning uh, treating the disease um, and you know uh, safely, uh, reliably, and at scale to treat all the patients who need it. Uh, in terms of a rundown of those properties we're working on, uh, the first one is obviously we wanna make the delivery more efficient meaning we want to deliver the payload to more of the cells in the body where it's needed that's going to enable us directly to lower the dose to, to treat the disease effectively as well as in many cases making it possible to to treat uh, new indications that are um you know aren't possible today because well, we just can't go to those organs or we can't go to the cell types uh, a good example is there's very little um gene therapy today in the kidney because of the challenges delivering there. Um, but it's pretty much the same across every organ. If we could make delivery more efficient, it, it would be transformative for uh, for those uh, patients. A second area for improvement is the specificity, because as viruses, they're pretty indiscriminate with regard to where they you know, go in your body and replicate, look over it wherever they can. Uh, and that means that uh, many of the natural AV capsids are pretty broad in their tropism. They, they go into many different organs um, whereas therapeutically we preferred if they went, you know, exactly where they're supposed to go and nowhere else. In other words, you know, very targeted. So that's something we can directly engineer. Actually, for the first time using these sequencing-based approaches, we can do something which was pretty challenging to do previously with directed evolution, which is a negative selection, meaning, you know, we're going to optimize for the efficiency. that's a positive uh, selection, but we're all going to detarget and only choose the variants which don't go other places which is very easy to do with our approach, but had been challenged before. So just those two things would be amazing. Um, A a challenge with AV is it's a very complex protein. And as it happens, uh, pretty much anything you do to it, any single change, about three quarters of those will completely break the function. Like They'll break the, uh, the capsid assembling or packaging the genome inside. And that means if you introduce multiple changes, it gets even worse. It's just like, making a library randomly, you have really low quality. And for that reason, when when folks have tried to improve those other two properties, like the efficiency and the specificity, in, in many cases, um, it's broken other functions like the manufacturability of the vector, which is obviously not ideal given it's already so challenging to make a gene therapy, even even one dose in many cases can be hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce, which is another reason why they're so expensive and also why um, you can only treat you know, so so few patients today so making it more efficient but making it harder to produce is not always going to be uh good in some cases it makes it completely a end in terms of in terms of um, engineering but one thing that we can do with our approach again because we're measuring all these properties directly kind of turning that physical experiment into uh data it's very easy to look at that data across multiple dimensions and out the one point and say that's the one we want because it has all these properties together at once. Um, the challenge being though that uh, the more properties you add, uh, the more rare those variants get. So we're, where machine learning really shines is improving the efficiency of that design by, by making use of all the information that we have from our huge amounts of data and then applying that to design the next round of our library. So just those Eric. three would really... Yeah, go
5: ahead. Could, yeah, if I could just interrupt you with a sort of, let's say, a controversial question. You've just painted a picture of, um, you know, of of patients and families that have extraordinary need, you know, advocacy groups that are um, that are pushing for as rapid development of therapy in a particular indication area as possible, a landscape where there's a lot of different biotech companies working on gene therapy. Why... Can you give us the argument for why each one of those companies focused on their own set of indications and tissue types won't innovate their way faster to an AAV capsid or gene delivery, you know, technology that's good enough? Like, what, what maybe you don't have to um, cover the full the full protein search space, right? And maybe some of them would argue that, well, I can what what I can get to quickly. Might be good enough for what I need, and I'm not going to solve the whole problem for the field. What's the what? What's the argument against that? That every company, you know, will kind of create this fleet of AVs around you. How does Dyno then continue to stay a powerful horizontal platform?
2: Well, it, there's no um, there's no need to argue against it because that that is the state of the field today. Um, we've, we've so many companies are taking a look around what's available and, um, you know, if there's any chance that it's going to help to treat some of these, uh, diseases, then they're trying it. And, um, you know, in many cases, uh, the call might be made that it's not ready. Um, it's too hard to get to the target cells, but in many cases it seems, you know, worth a shot. And, and then we have a clinical trial. Um, there's just so, the complexity of the products is so high. And as I said, the, the challenge of engineering better capsids is also, uh, quite high that, um, the companies that are going after gene therapies today are, are in many cases defaulting to, um, the tools that we already have and with the hope that they'll be sufficient. So where Dyna really comes in is in those cases where, uh, their need, there's a, you know, a need for improved properties of those capsids, Uh, and there's many cases of that because really well, just to put things in perspective again there's there's thousands of genetic diseases and there's two FDA approved gene therapies so we're still a very long away away from being able to to help all the patients who, who could benefit from gene therapy and mm-hmm. really that's a
5: really good reminder uh,
2: it, you know we believe it's possible to improve the, these properties things like the efficiency you know by orders of magnitude you know hundred fold even a thousand fold because we're very far away from optimal based upon what's evolved naturally, there just hasn't been a need for a natural virus to go into a neuron. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's the state of where things are at. There's certainly things that are possible today. And that's where, you know, that's what enabled Dynar to get our start um, as as a kind of platform is that there's already huge activity in the space. And there's many folks who have a deep experience building gene therapies and who can help get patients, uh, help get these drugs to patients very quickly and uh what's enabled us to focus on just this this one aspect this kind of horizontal layer across the whole industry of of delivery uh is that where we're embedded within an ecosystem where all the other pieces are in place and all those companies need is you know the delivery vector and it just slots right into their their current manufacturing platform it's, it's pretty amazing actually just given the um you know the problem as, as we think about it at dyno like literally there's uh, you know, 700 odd uh, letters in the AV capsid protein. And like, if we just know what the right combination of those is, then in the context of this whole field, that can have a really transformative impact. Uh, so we're really, you know, we're not inventing everything ourselves, but we are solving the key problem that's going to enable others to, to really, um, make a lot of new therapies.
4: Can I add one little thing here? Um, you, uh, you mentioned about, um, why people don't go for something that's good enough? Uh, maybe it's not the, exactly the business case. Maybe it is the business case, but I want to say um, the two FDA-approved gene therapies are like two million dollars um, in price. Um, that's not good enough. Uh, it's really far from good enough. And my vision of what Dino should do is to make it so much better that um, it's accessible to so many other patients and able at a much more affordable price.
5: Yeah, could not agree more. I think. I think. It'll be interesting, though, to learn what fold multiple in efficiency, quality, performance, safety like you have to get to to convince the rest of the ecosystem, right that what they're what they're doing or or kind of a maybe a good enough approach um, is worth abandoning uh, in favor of 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 a platform driven optimized approach. And I'm interested to learn that with you guys what that threshold is.
1: Yeah, and actually, in that in that vein, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Dino um, uh, and is the is that the, this platform focus that you have is you know it's it's not entirely novel, but it is pretty unique. I would say um, this idea that you're not trying to develop your own gene therapies, you are, as you said, Eric, providing sort of this horizontal delivery infrastructure layer for all gene therapies the playbook is the valuable thing is the the drug, the therapy. Like, why don't you go and develop that? I'd love to hear, um, you know, how you approach that when you thought about getting the company up and
2: running. Thanks, Corey. Exactly. That's a great question. Um, and I would say this is definitely the most controversial part of how we set out to start the company because, um, No one had done it quite in this way before. And and I believe that's because this type of opportunity didn't exist before. So, you know, it's really designed for this moment in time for um, the huge potential of gene therapies and, you know, the way that the therapy has these modular pieces, the vector being something that's shared across many different uh, products and the payload being the one that's really specific to a particular disease because, you know, in many cases that's tailored to the. Um, uh, the gene that you're trying to treat. So, like, I I think it's a really amazing opportunity, but uh, in many cases, I would say from investors who are used to recognizing patterns, it kind of breaks the mold. And they're more used to saying, well, you know, the traditional biotech model is you got your technology great, platform great, but what, uh, you know, what drug are you going to develop first? What's your lead indication? So this was... A different approach. Um, and I, I think that there were there were some who uh, kind of saw the, the value of this um, more than others. And, you know, what, what was really helpful for me was learning to effectively pitch the story on the merits of this unique opportunity to find those types of investors who really believed in it and to filter out, you know, folks who we probably um, weren't going to be working with in any way, because um, we really wanted to be aligned with regard to how we want to build the company. So it was important to get that, that alignment um, within the team and then also with, with investors who joined our team. Um, I, I think that ultimately though, I, what, what drove it was um, having done this early customer discovery, talking to folks at gene therapy, genetic companies and asking them, do you need better AVs and getting a resounding yes from them, which made me feel like if we can solve this problem, that those folks are going to want to work with us. and, you know they're just they're just waiting for something that's going to make their product better or be differentiating to make them more competitive. Um, so what what really ultimately is you know sold this pitch to investors was wasn't continuing to talk about the technology. This is you know in around 2018, we finally had put all the pieces together. We'd done uh, this work developing the ability to barcode the capsids and measure them in high throughput, as well as demonstrating how machine learning could improve the efficiency of capsid design. So we had put those pieces together and then, you know, the question was how are we going to launch the company? Um, and I was kind of exploring these two things in parallel. I was talking to uh, all the companies who had reached out to us after we presented this stuff at ASGCP, the big gene therapy meeting, and also talking to investors and the investors. It was like, you know, I had worked for four years and developed this technology and, you know, there were some ups and downs and it took about a year longer than I had hoped. But in the end, it was a pretty straight shot. Like we did what we said we were going to do, and sharing that data, you know, it was like, okay, but what's next? And you know, tell me when you have that. So it felt like you could never really satisfy investors, no matter how de-risked the technology was. But then talking to potential partners, <laughs> I, I take that personally. <laughs> well, um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to turn around and ask you in a moment. So, so, but but I guess I guess what I want to say is, um, like, investors always want more. Um, but what really helped for Dyna was then going out and talking to potential partners. And again, they're, they're the ones whose problem we're solving. And so many of them were, you know, were just really blown away by the approach because it's so different from how we've done protein engineering before. And they know the problem is really important. And they got the feeling like, you know, we can't miss out on this. This could change the whole field. If we don't, you know, uh, take advantage of this wave of new opportunity, then we're, we might be in a really tough position. And then that you know led to all sorts of discussions with the BD teams in these companies, which led to a bunch of questions like, how do we partner with Dino? And, and ultimately, that's the thing that really helped investors get on board with the idea was, yeah, you know, it's it's different, but look at how much like traction it already is. You know, you know, even before there's a company uh, built on this. Um, so that's what led to the seed, and you know, I, I think that. Um, I was going to turn around to, to ask you, Jorge, because we, we just did the Series A with Andreessen and Horowitz and we're super uh, thrilled to be working with your team. Um, um, but I, I remember talking to you even early days before the, the seed pitch and and you had some questions as well about this model. I, I wonder how you saw it back then and if you know, how you see it differently now.
1: Yeah, no, I look, I think, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right that investors are, are looking for, um, they're generally looking for two things, right? I mean, at the risk of being overly simplistic is, you know, um, you know, can this work and can it be big, right? Like those are the, like, we're in that regard, we're pretty simple animals. Um, and so, you know, the, when, when, when we first met, I mean, I remember being so incredibly impressed and, you know, we have the fortune of, of having, you know, George Church as a. You know, as a as a common acquaintance, and you know he he speaks the world of you guys, and so you know that that obviously always helps. And the biggest question I had for you at the time I remember was really on the model. To your point, right? Like, will will this model work? Will will companies be willing um, to essentially um, in license a a better capsid? Believe it's going to be a better capsid and pay appropriately for that, right? Like that was the big question, kind of to what the the question Venita asked you earlier. Um, And, you know, what was fantastic to see is that in relatively short order, I mean, for you, it probably took years and years, but from an outsider's perspective, in relatively short order, you know, you were able to bring on partners on board um, that signaled that level of belief, right, with the the, the deals that you've announced already in, in your relatively short life as a company. So you know that that obviously gives us great confidence, and, and and very large part was one of the driving factors for us. You know, really leaning in to to lead uh, this this most recent financing, the Series A round that we just announced. Uh, what was it last week? Um, so I think I think that that's that to me is the most fascinating thing about this this story is you know you've put all these pieces together. You thought long and hard about the problem, and in you know relatively quickly you were able to show that you know. Uh, that your solution was being valued by the market and that you could, in fact, make a horizontal play here work. Um, So that's been very satisfying to to see. And of of course, given all of the opportunity that's ahead of us, as you said, right, we only have two approved gene therapies available today. There are thousands of diseases that could benefit from this approach uh, to, to treatment. That you know, hopefully this is an, an opportunity to have a massive impact on industry, and of course, more importantly, have a massive impact on the patients that suffer from these diseases. So that's what makes this very exciting, and the fact that you've given us reason to you know show that it works and to believe that it'll be big is obviously you know incredibly um, exciting for us as investors as well. Um, one last question for you, and we started to bring up some folks. Um, that, you know, probably have questions for you guys and or are associated with Dyno so we can, you know, uh, chat as a as a, as a as a broader team. But one last question I have for you is, you know, I talked about the headlines and one of the other things you see in the headlines right now is that gene therapy is getting a lot of attention, right? For all the reasons we've talked about. Um, and so, you know, we've seen companies get, you know, other, you know, gene therapy companies uh, emerge, new startups emerge. We've seen, uh, you know, other uh, you know partnerships or bd business development deals announced in this space you know do you look at that as um you know uh is that a threat is that an opportunity is that a validation of what you're doing like how do you look at the state of the field now given all of this activity as it relates to dyno uh
2: it's a great question why, why don't sam and i both take a shot at answering this um on on my side, I would say it's just fantastic to see like the field has really, um, gotten even bigger, even faster than I think we could have imagined or anticipated back in 2015. Um, so it's great to see all the activity. It's not a surprise, as I mentioned, it's you know, everyone wants to solve this problem. So it makes sense that any good chance, any, any new idea is going to get funding to do it. Uh, and ultimately what's, you know, what's best is that no matter what happens, patients are going to win in this um, In because of all the innovation and new ideas that are coming into the space. So that's that's really, um, I would say, the thing that makes me not lose any sleep over it is, is just knowing that uh, it's, it's all going to work out well in the end. I think that with regard to Dyno, you know, we're taking a very different approach in multiple dimensions. There's the kind of Um, focus on building new technologies because we believe that the challenges that we're going to face as a field, many of them are so big that we're not going to be able to overcome them without a new approach. And that there are so many problems and so many, you know, they're so similar to each other that um, this approach of investing in the technology is going to help us solve more problems faster. Uh, So, you know, in some ways we've been investing Uh, over the last six years and developing a new approach. And and now with this financing and with the new people we're going to bring onto the team, uh, we get a chance to prove, you know, that there was something to it. And, uh, and, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot to be done there and a lot of challenges to face, but we're, uh, we're looking for all sorts of folks who are um, excited by that challenge and we are really welcoming them to our team. Um, And I know we're going to find some traction just based upon some of the promising things we've seen to date and, you know, so if you put like, the air bars on what I think our success would be, it's either we're going to solve some of the key problems and help some patients, or maybe we'll solve all the problems and help all the patients. Like I, I think that that's really um, – it's, it's an amazing position to be in. So I, I'm not at all uh, upset by seeing how much activity there is in this space, and, and really um, – yeah, I'm just really excited to see it. Salma, do you want to add anything? Mm-hmm.
4: Um, Yeah, just something short about, I I see it also as validation and as Eric said, uh, the ultimate goal is to help as many people as possible and I think the more companies that try to do that, um, the better it is for the patients. Um, One thing I want to say is, um, we have committed to a particular uh, sort of road um, that involves the machine learning and data science at the core of decision making for our experiments. And... um, It is not the case in many places that machine learning and data science are at the core of the design pipeline. Uh, Sometimes they are there to inform the design pipeline, but they're not um, there to basically decide how things are designed. And um, I think this is a particular sort of hypothesis to be tested, one that we are very optimistic about, but requires a specific sort of commitment and a leap of faith at this time um, that I don't think even when people say they have adopted machine learning, it's rare when you actually look under the hood that they have committed to machine learning at their decision maker. And for this reason, we have more sensitivity to our machine learning approaches being good and correct rather than just being helpful because we are sort of using them to design our core product. Uh, And I want to say that this approach um, Can work for many proteins as well. So, there are many or many other sequences in biology. So, us validating this approach doesn't just impact uh, gene therapy, but also other uh, protein design that others are also, of course, working on. But it's um, the impact is broader than just gene therapy, in my view.
2: Wonderful. I want to add one one thing to that, Sam, and then maybe this would be a good transition to talk to a few other aviators who I see are up here, Um, like one one of the original motivations for me in in wanting to go join a startup was, uh, you know, really enjoying working on great teams with great people, learning from them, and like all the surprises and great ideas that can emerge from from that dynamic. Um, so, So I think that's the really exciting thing about the approach that we've taken, is we're really at the cutting edge of multiple fields. And that, that just draws really amazing people to work for the company. So I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what we're gonna do with the Series A, a big part of which is to recruit. You know, Right now we're at 50 people. The plan is to basically triple in size and that's essentially across all areas, um, molecular biology, synthetic biology, gene therapy, as well as the uh, computational biology, software engineering, machine learning, that, you know, that make up R&D plus all the functions that support that. Uh, and it's already worked, and that strategy has really paid off in terms of the folks who have joined the company so far, and I, I just feel so fortunate to be working with uh, a team of such talented, nice, creative people. Um, so I want to thank him as well for coming along uh, on this exciting journey. And by the way, we are thrilled to be a part of this journey now too, so
1: thank you for the for that opportunity. I'd I say that on behalf of of, of all of us at, at A16Z, so uh, thank you for, for including us.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can transition now to the uh, after-party portion. Um, and this is exciting new for us because uh, we we thought that it's not just great founders that get the job done. As Eric mentioned, those are great segue. It's, it's a great team. Uh, Eric, so we thought for this after-party, we'd invite a bunch of your teammates. Maybe, Eric, if you can introduce the folks around the room real quick. Um, We can, you know, then uh, go around and hear some different voices from, you said aviators, which I just love the term. Um, So maybe I'll have Eric introduce the the crew here from Dyno.
2: Great, really happy to do that. Um, So I'm just going to read people off kind of in the order that I see them uh, on the stage. So there's Flavio, who's on our software engineering team. Andrea is our head of finance. Stephen's on the machine learning team. Adrian is a scientific co-founder. Um A is on our biodistribution team. There's Jeff, our head of data science. Adam is our head of IP. And Farhan is on our machine learning team. And if there's other Amir. folks in the in the sphere. Uh,
6: oh, is Amir here?
4: Amir is here too. Amir uh, is on the machine learning oh, team perfect. as well.
2: Great. Thanks, Sam.
6: So uh, what's also neat about this is that we got a bunch of people who are new on Clubhouse too. So... Uh, maybe we'll just do this where we'll just call your name and then if you can go uh, unmute yourself and then add a comment, you know, question to the group. This is a pretty free-flowing free flowing conversation. So we'll start with Flavia. We'll just go around the room here. Flavio, do you want to go off mute?
4: Yeah, thanks for the invite.
6: Do you have, uh, you know, do you want to just step into this conversation with thoughts, questions on the, you know, we've been having uh, secrets behind what it takes to be a great Dino teammate? give us all the, you know, the gossip here.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess I, there, there's one question that I've never had the, the chance to really ask, uh, I guess, Eric and, and Sam, and that is um, when they first started in, uh, you know, as, as juniors in the field, what were some of, the, some of the greatest challenges? Like, did you feel like the imposter syndrome, for instance? Uh, how did you feel when you first raised? Um, and some of the challenges at the beginning of implementing uh, some of the machine, the early machine learning algorithms that we had at the company.
6: I love that, Eric and Sam are on the spot here.
4: Um, Do I ever felt like I had imposter syndrome? Probably. Yeah, I mean, I um, I feel like obviously when I first started working on machine learning, it felt like um, I don't understand any of this. Um, I had some formal courses, but like it was no there was no reason that um, it it was going to work on the type of data um, out of the box. And, and so I always question whether I have enough skills to solve a problem that is this difficult. But then um, when I asked very smart people to give me the answer, they never had the answer. So I felt like, okay, well, if I work hard enough on it, I'll see the answer. And there were a few moments where um, I had like this very pleasant surprise that you sometimes have in science that something all of a sudden shows you the answer like you run this machine learning algorithm and all of a sudden see that it's predicting something and you didn't expect it to work at all. Um, I, I worked on an algorithm for a generative model early, uh, early on before we had some data and I, I was hopeful that it would work, but, uh, one day I just ran it and, and it popped out the answer and I couldn't believe it. I looked for bugs for two days and there were no bugs. And so, um, It was a really pleasant experience. So I I guess the way I I dealt with my imposter imposter syndrome was I asked people that I really trusted who were smart and knew what they were doing. And none of them gave me a good answer. And so that was motivating saying, okay, I'm not alone in this. uh, And um, the best way to fail is not to try. So yeah, my general view on uh, feeling incompetent is work harder till you feel competent.
6: Fair, fair enough. Eric, do you have anything to add there? If not, we can. Yeah, I, I do,
2: and I think uh, it's a great question, Flav. Um, and I guess my, my response is that I, I think everyone feels imposter syndrome. Um, and then the only way to, at least that I found, to overcome that is you just try things and make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And then you become comfortable in the situations that you weren't before. Um, so maybe a few things to say about like that experience for me. Uh, as as the CEO of the company, that wasn't originally my goal. Uh, I remember, my goal was just to go join an exciting startup or be a member of a great startup team. Uh, so, like the the journey to become a CEO was um, probably where I got the most pushback early on. Um, you know, folks saying like, "Well, you're a scientist. Uh, you know, scientists shouldn't be CEOs. You need a business background. You need an MBA, uh, or you're not the right you know personality type uh, to do it." you know, I'm more of an introvert, um, more analytical. So I I got all sorts of people, you know, kind of pushing back against that idea. Um, and and I guess what, what made me more comfortable with it was a lot of the things that failed prior to starting Dino. Like I worked on kind of proto startups, um, during graduate school, uh, and learned a lot of lessons that way, you know, basically screwed things up (laughs) for those. And I was really fortunate to do that because that's what Uh, Helped me not to screw things up so badly when when we you know got started on Dino. Like a a good lesson that I learned from um, one of those projects, uh, you know, which eventually we did kind of a startup competition called the Harvard President's Challenge, and which led to some presentations and even investors would come to that. And um, the funny story is that what we we went to give a follow up presentation uh, for one of those investors and he actually brought his checkbook and, you know, a friend who was going to vet the, the biology. Um, so basically told them our idea, which was, um, uh, we, we'd pitched it as, uh, called a collaborative genome browser called Flume. Um, but interestingly, like that was just the surface of the idea. And there was actually, um, kind of, a, a secret other plan, which is a lot more like what Dyno is today in terms of doing experiments And so when when we got to that stage of of kind of sharing this with an investor who seemed like they were about to give us money, finally I decided like, um, you know, I better tell him what we're really going to do. Otherwise, we're not going to wouldn't be right to take uh, any money for this. And when I kind of like came out with the real plan, uh, he was just like completely shocked and like surprised and no one likes to be surprised Um, and, you know, very critical of me as the leader of this uh, effort, Um, you know, was, was I qualified or not. Uh, to do it, and um, I, I guess what I learned from that was, like, you just got to tell people what your idea is, and not worry if they don't like it, and that's going to help you filter and find the people who do like it. And you just got to figure out a way to to pitch that convincingly in a way that it's genuine. Uh, so a lot of like, kind of practicing that, you know, about four years later led to uh, you know, successful pitch and, and funding of the company. Um, and and even then, that was kind of because I looked around and I had been pitching this to all sorts of folks, companies, and you know potential team members. And looking around, I didn't see anyone who I felt was more qualified than me to be the CEO. So and I wanted to start the company then because it was the right time. And so I you know, finally switched over and said, okay, I'm not going to be looking for a business partner to be the CEO. I'm just going to do it myself and commit to that. And kind of making that that flip decision. Uh, you know, then uh, but by that time, having like thought about this for about four years and then all sorts of other reading, um, you know, finally, finally, I was the most qualified person to do it and kind of embrace that role. So it was definitely a long journey, but um, kind of trusting your own judgment and practice really yeah, can
5: pay off.
6: Thank you both, by the way, for staying over. I know we're technically a little over time. So if you can stay a few more minutes, um, any other, you know, Adrian, Lindsay, Andrea, Amir, Jeff from the Dino team, uh, thoughts, comments, questions, um, you know, reflections on the conversation here. Feel free to unmute and we can.
7: Uh, I actually actually have a question um, for for Eric and some. Uh, a big part of I, I felt um, a big part of uh, Dino and and kind of the development of Dino that I've seen in the last couple of years has been a really big emphasis on. Uh developing a really strong culture and one where people are really happy and have or feel the ability to uh voice uh how they feel about things um and an openness when it comes to communication um and I, I was wondering where uh sam and Eric um, got uh i guess um, guidance on on how to build that at Dino if they were looking elsewhere for that sort of thing um, and uh, it's great to great to be here talking to everybody.
2: Um, for me, I guess that was part of the original attraction to, to join a startup. I wanted to work on great teams. So it was really aspirational. Like if we're gonna, if we have the chance to start our own company, we've got to do our best to make it an amazing place to work. Um, you know, and why not given how rewarding that would be. So although we didn't really know starting out how to do that, um, you know, caring a lot about how people, uh, feel and respecting people and I guess, um, treating people like they're going to exceed your expectations was kind of key to me and a lot of those principles you know, eventually became some of the things that we, we think of today in terms of uh, Dino's cultural values.
4: Um, honestly, I felt like the best place to get guidance... So I knew culture was important to me um, but I felt like the most important place to get guidance is from within the people that you're working with. I think that's the first place you want to go to understand people and uh, build on it, but then also there were resources that Eric uh, and I and Adrian and Jeff and uh, many other people in the company would bring up, and we would look into them. and And the ones that made sense to us, we would try to um, adopt. That was basically our my approach, at
1: least. I mean, it makes it makes such an incredible difference um, to to a company um, how the you know how the culture is. Uh, is built from from the very beginning because it, of course, serves as the foundation of of what the company can become and will become. Um, I have a question, and may, maybe in you know in the interest of time, I'll make this a, a, bit, a bit of a of a closing question, if I could. Um, so I want to talk about the future. Um, so, you know, a couple of years ago, Scott Gottlieb had you know had this you know quote that he made in one of his uh, uh, you know FDA communications, which was that the agency, the FDA, expected that they would be Uh, you know, reviewing and approving something on the order of 10 to 20 uh, uh, cell and gene therapies every single year by 2025. So four short years from now. And again, to remind folks, like we only have two currently approved gene therapies today, right? The entire history of humankind to today, we've got two. And, you know, four or five years from now, we're going to be at least reviewing for approval, according to the former head of the FDA, 10 to 20 cell-engine therapies every single year. So that's a massive change in terms of where we're going. Given what you know and what you work on, is that an optimistic view, a foolish one? Uh, Is that not ambitious enough? Like, Where do you think we are as a field five years from now or 10 years from now?
4: I would like to nominate a And volunteering this since we and Eric talked a lot. And um, Adrian is one of the other co founders and uh, also an MD PhD. Sure, please.
8: I'm happy to chime in for that. Um, so I think the it's one of those situations where five years uh, often feels awfully close, where 10 years feels pretty comfortable. Um, I think what it's going to take for the future of us getting to the nominating 10 to 20 a year um, is, is also going to take a pretty big evolution in the kinds of therapies we're looking at. Um, I think right now, it it one one model of this is you actually have five therapies that are very similar, using going essentially after the same target or really the same indication. Does that actually qualify as success? I think the real success is also when we're actually looking in a space where those 10 to 20 are actually a pretty diverse set going after a number of different indications and in, in new therapeutics. And that's also going to take the evolution of this gene therapy field and, and the cell therapy field and kind of merging and us being able to do more interesting things in the space itself of um, of what's available with these therapeutics. don't know if that answers your question.
3: Could no, I that's add great. on, Thank Adrian? You. I guess the only other comment, this is Jeff, that, that I'd like to make is it kind of harkens back to an earlier question about where are the network effects. And I think What you're asking is basically what kind of network effects are there uh, as a field? And that remains to be seen. But um, I'm very optimistic about their existence.
6: Maybe uh, being conscious of time here, Eric and uh, some. I think there might be one or two questions here. Um, Maybe we'll take one more. Lindsay or Paige, do you both have comments, questions for the founders of Bano here?
7: Yeah, um, I had um, hopefully just two quick questions. So um, I did, actually my friend and I, we covered um, your guys' paper that came out earlier this year on the um, AV capsid protein by machine learning. And um, one, I was wondering how the, um, because I saw that one of the co-authors came from Google. So I was wondering how that collaboration happened. And then two, if at Dyna, you um, guys have had any struggles recruiting um, software engineers, given that you're competing with tech companies, too?
4: I can uh, pick that up, um, Eric. If, yeah, OK. So um, first of all, um, yeah. So Eric was looking uh, around to see if we, we basically wanted to make sure that we all have the access to the best resources and the best people to work on machine learning problems. And we, in 2017, started a collaboration with Google uh, which involved some scientists on their side. Um, and uh, actually, it, it, it's it been a very interesting conversation to have with them, um, for me especially as a sort of person who was on the Harvard side, was worked on machine learning, uh, because uh, there was a lot of uh, mutual education about um, what it means to adapt uh, machine learning for biology. And so, yeah, that's been a, a very positive collaboration, I, I think uh, many of the folks up here, um, uh, I, I can mention people, say, in my team, like Amir and Steven and uh, Farhan, for instance, uh, I, I have no doubt they would be a great um, fits at, at big companies like Google. And and I am very glad that we have them here with us at Dino. I think they're um, more interested in our mission and it, it's meaningful to them to work on the problems that we are working on. And that is one way that we can compete with these giants. The other way we can compete with these giants is that we have uh, a lot more data and we are solving problems that uh, frankly Google doesn't have access to. Like our collaborators loved working with us because we worked on problems that generally is not um, available to Google at this time. So um, I do want to say that the sort of innovation we get to do in machine learning is uh, uh, quite novel. And I just want to use this opportunity. I know there's um, um, not a lot of time left, but if any of the three people I just named, if you wanted to say something about that, I will also welcome you to just um, make a comment.
7: Uh, I'd love to. Um, my name is uh, Farhan. I'm a machine learning scientist at Dino, And before, uh, you know, I met Eric and Sam back in March of 2020. And, uh, you know, Sam was mentioning earlier, um, they it's actually quite bold to make machine learning and making data-driven decisions uh, about your library designs entirely through machine learning a central part of your company. Um, and these ideas of guided design um, are relatively new, even in academia, going back to you know, 2015, 2016. So being able to take that step to uh, integrate it um, was really what, what drew me Um but i guess just answer sam's question about uh sort of what makes our prediction problem at least uh especially difficult um you know it's not the kind of problem that i think off the shelf tools um, are particularly suitable for there's uh, data bias are inevitable there's sparse coverage for example difficult uh, cell types to uh, transduce means that we might have very few data points finally there's oftentimes a misalignment between canonical metrics for model evaluation and metrics that actually quantify how well we're doing at designing high quality libraries. So canonical metrics, like looking at average risk um, in a, in a distribution is not especially useful if you're interested in tail risk, as an example. Awesome.
6: Um, thank you for that, For That was uh, a very detailed question here, uh, answer rather. I think maybe, um, as Eric mentioned, Dino's growing. So if you have any questions or follow-up, I'm sure, um, you know, there's a way, Eric, whatever, you know, you recommend a way to reach out to you and the team. I, I'm sure this is, a, there are folks with a lot of interesting questions and maybe even interesting to apply to join the mission and journey um, at that. So one, maybe one last time, if you have um, any other questions, maybe Andrea, I know we skipped you here. If you have any questions, we want to make sure we want to come to you as well.
4: I, before Andrea speaks, um, I just want to say we can always also have a different Clubhouse room where people, folks who didn't get to answer questions today Perfect. can follow up with Dino folks um, again. We have gotten a lot of them on Clubhouse as a result of this event. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> give Fantastic. it to Andrea now. Yeah.
6: Love that. Andrea, that's a great idea, actually. Maybe after this, well, I can open up an overflow room. That's a good idea. Andrea, we'll give you the last question and we'll close this session and we'll as uh, as mentioned we'll open up another room
4: oh i i didn't mean we necessarily have to do it today but um yeah i don't know maybe maybe it works today as well we'll see
6: <laughs> I, I thought you were so excited about clubhouse that you wanted to stay here for the next couple of hours that's that was the impression i had got no no i'm kidding that sounds right uh, andrea take it away
0: Sure, I actually don't have any questions, but I would like to um, just give a little plug for the people and the culture at Dyno. Um, As the head of finance, I'm one of the few non-scientists on this um, meeting, but um, the reason I joined Dyno, what attracted me to it, I've spent over the past decade in biotech at multiple startups and at a larger um, company as well. I was really um, interested in Dino because of the people, and I know um, Eric had mentioned it. You know, you want to work with nice people, and I think that Dino does a really good job of being thoughtful during the interview process and. Um, We have a base um, of valued behaviors that we've implemented for such a young company. I feel like we have some sophisticated um, approaches and beliefs in place that um, all aviators are obviously asked and encouraged to follow. So um, the people really are fantastic. And I do think um, our platform is really promising, too. That's the second reason why I joined Dino. Um, I have worked at a gene therapy company before, and I've seen from the finance perspective just how expensive uh, the manufacturing is for gene therapy. And I know Sam had mentioned some numbers. The average price tag for a gene therapy is, is close to $2 million, which is just not sustainable um, in the long run. It'll bankrupt our healthcare system, and it won't um, open up access to as many patients as we want, obviously. So if Dyno can really help um, with that and reduce um, the manufacturing costs and really make more gene therapies available to us, it would be wonderful. And I think that, you know, we have a a good chance at doing that and really impacting, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients who right now really don't have, um, you know, as long of a life as they should. So... That's it. So I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm I'm so um, excited to partner with A16C going forward. And thanks for giving us this opportunity to speak about Dino.
1: Thank you. By the way, Andrew, do you know who came up with Aviators? Because I'm sort of annoyed that it wasn't me, but it's pretty great.
4: There was a competition. There was a competition.
1: Many people
4: suggested names. All of the names I suggested lost, just so you know. This
2: is what we call collective innovation. Yeah, it was uh, it was a team effort.
0: And we're still and debating way, whether I it's think... how to spell it. If it's double if it's capitalized AAV or if it's capital A Ooh. lowercase A lowercase V. So if you have input on that, go for it.
1: I, think I feel strongly it. should be capitalized A V. I feel very strongly you... about this all of a sudden.
6: You guys just made uh Jorge start a new internal Slack channel at A sixteen Z now. So <laughs> uh uh this has been an amazing conversation and, and some i think andrew just gave us the next clubhouse follow-up conversation about gene therapy and costs and and you know how dollars flow which is just a fascinating conversation um this has been amazing thank you both uh, and thank you to the entire uh dino team slash aviator crew to joining us for this conversation it's been amazing i for sure i've learned a lot um for any parting thoughts eric some uh, thank you so much for making this happen. If not, we'll see you all uh,
8: next Monday.
1: Yes, just echoing, thank you. Um, and uh, again, thrilled to be part of, of the Dino journey now. Um, hope, hopefully we at some point earn the title of aviators ourselves as as now investors. And uh, uh, can't wait to see you guys fulfill the vision uh, for what you have um, for reshaping this entire uh, gene therapy landscape. Thanks for having us,
4: and welcome to
1: our family, too.
2: Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks, uh, A16Z. Welcome to the team, and and thanks for all the aviators uh, for showing up today to to help uh,
6: represent the company. Showing up in numbers. I love it. Thank you all. Take care, and see you next week.